Hello and welcome to Weathersnap. I'm Claire Nazir and joining me today is sociometeorologist and co-host of our sister show, Mostly Weather, it's Helen Roberts. Helen, what are we talking about today? Hi Claire, lovely to be here. So yes, after Storm Noah that brought some really tragic impacts to Ireland, the UK and the near continent, What's next for our weather? Forecasts are actually suggesting the possibility of 20 Celsius next week. And there's a fascinating new report out on flash drought. And we'll hear more on this from Graham Madge later in the show. Yes, this flash drought phrase. I haven't heard this before properly. Yeah, I haven't heard this this terminology, but it's it's a fascinating paper. Um, Graham explains all about exactly what it means in the definition, but it's as you would expect, I guess, from the name, it's all about very rapid and and quick impacts from, from drought conditions. Mm, we'll learn more about that in a moment. But first of all, tropical cyclone Ilsa is making landfall across Western Australia. Here's what we know already. It's the most destructive storm in over a decade for Western Australia. It's a Category 5 storm, so it's the highest of the five levels of, of equivalent hurricane and it has a real defined eye associated with it. This defined eye is a very, what they're terming a destructive core with extreme gusts up to 285 kilometres per hour, impacting towns across the Port Hedland area. So red alerts have been issued. For some, it's too late to be evacuated and they're warning residents this is a beast of a storm and the residents must take shelter, Port Hedland and, and the area around. There are evacuation centres and authorities are providing sandbagging just to help with the, the impact of this cyclone. So we're getting our information from the uh, Bureau of Meteorology, uh, the BOM website. Um, more information is on that website. It's a great go-to, it really is. And that's www.bom.gov.au. So, uh, Helen, in terms of wind description, the Bureau of Meteorology uh, have various categories for how they describe these sort of cyclonic winds, which really just really ram into the coastline. Yeah, that's right. So they have a few categories, including damaging, destructive and very destructive. And this storm is in that top category. So very destructive winds. Also, extremely heavy rainfall is expected along the track of the storm. 150 to 300 millimetres of rainfall is possible during Thursday night and into Friday, especially close to where the storm makes landfall. And those rainfall amounts will gradually decrease as the storm tracks inland. As well as the winds and the rain, abnormally high tides are possible around the coast, around the Port Hedland area as the system crosses the coast tonight or, or early Friday morning. And in some places, the tide may be close to or even exceed the highest astronomical tide of the year. So this is a huge storm and it's obviously developed out to sea, uh, enhanced by Rosby wave activity. And also the, the departure of what we call um, the Madame Julian Oscillation. So this is a perturbation which is interseasonal, which can enhance or subdue um, cyclone activity. And so the, all of these things have come together, including really high sea surface temperatures, higher than normal, to create this huge storm. We're just looking at the track on a schematic which has been provided by the Bureau of Meteorology. 
That's right. Yeah, it looks like it will make landfall somewhere between a category four and, as you said, the highest category five. So it really will be an incredibly powerful storm as it as it makes landfall. And then it will gradually start to weaken as these systems often do as it tracks inland. OK, so we're looking at that tracking inland into the weekend. This is happening right now across the western side of Australia. And um, obviously, more information, check out the website there. Helen, we're going to be talking about climate change in a moment. Graham has got a new paper which has been published this week about flash droughts. But when we talk about climate change, obviously, every part of weather is analysed in terms of how climate change is perhaps changing the pattern or the intensity of various things, including droughts, including rainfall, but also cyclones. Across Australia, how many cyclones do they normally have in about a, in, a, in a year or so? Yes, well, tropical cyclones threaten northern Australia every year during the tropical cyclone season, which normally runs between November and April. And on average, the Australian region experiences 11 cyclones a year, although typically only four or five of these will actually make landfall. Right, OK, so climate projections are suggesting that there's a pattern to the way these tropical cyclones are going to evolve into the future? Yeah, it's always a tricky area of research, but it, it, what we do know is that the effects of climate change will be superimposed on the, the natural climate variability, leading to changes in both the frequency and intensity of these extreme weather events. And the underlying warming trend of the oceans around the world, which is linked to human-induced climate change, will tend to increase the risk of extreme rain, rainfall events in the short to medium term. And this is because warmer oceans tend to increase the amount of moisture that gets transported from the oceans to the atmosphere and of course a warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture so enhancing the potential for extreme rainfall and the risk of flooding and erosion. Interestingly tropical cyclone numbers are actually projected to decrease in frequency in the Australian region but it is expected that a greater proportion of these will be stronger so higher intensity city storms. Thanks very much. Well, uh, our thoughts go out to the communities who are being impacted by Cyclone Ilse right now. In a moment, we'll be touching on Storm Noah, which impacted the UK, Ireland and the Low Countries. But before that, we caught up with Graham Madge. He's our climate correspondent who has details of a new paper coming out on flash droughts. Well, the paper looks at flash droughts across the world and flash droughts is where you get a rapid intensification of drought that develop much more quickly within a matter of two or three weeks and what this paper in science is showing is that when you look at the proportion of droughts across the world the number of these so-called flash droughts these rapidly intensifying droughts are increasing as a proportion overall. Now, to be specific, um, we have to look at examples of flash droughts. And obviously, many of our listeners will be familiar with the situation that developed last year with the drought following the intense heat of last year's summer. According to the definition, that was not a flash drought. That was one that was fairly slow onset. Um, and what we're looking at here is a situation that develops not just from 
a lack of precipitation, rainfall or snowfall. It's looking at how soils also lose moisture very rapidly. And as we know from previous episodes of WeatherSnap, that drying of soils can actually intensify heat and drying situations. Um, obviously, this is a global study, um, and it looks at the fact that since the late 1950s, around three quarters of the world's 33 global regions have seen flash droughts becoming more frequent since the late 1950s. And that does include parts of Europe as well. So this is not just a, a remote uh, event. This is happening close to our shores as well. So when was this first identified? Because it's not a term that we're particularly familiar with and not something that crops up very much in sort of weather and climate textbooks. The paper cites a couple of examples of these um, about 10 years ago. So there was an event in the United States which really started to bring flash droughts to prominence. And then the next year, there was another event in China, this rapid onset of drought conditions, which has brought it to prominence. But you're right, Claire, it's, it's not something that is widely known among the meteorological community. But it's something, I guess, given the, the findings of the paper, that we are going to have to uh, get more used to. And I presume if we project into the next sort of 20, 30, 50 years, they're likely to become more frequent across most parts of the world. I read in the paper that no parts of the land across the world will be untouched by this. That's right. It's something that we can expect to affect many more regions, affecting three quarters of the world already. Um, and it's something that is likely to increase in extent and also increase in uh, frequency, at least compared with other droughts. Where can we find more information about this? Paper is being launched in science. There is information available from the Met Office's website. Our thanks to Graham Madge. And next week, the State of the Global Climate Report comes out. That's published by WMO with contributors from the Met Office. So more about that next week on WeatherSnap. Now, earlier this week, um, the weather was incredibly stormy. We saw two areas of low pressure which were slow moving across the UK. The jet stream was to the south of the country, meaning this stormy weather just kept circulating around. Now, in fact, it was the French Met Service, Meteor France, who named the storm as Storm Noah. That was on Wednesday. And it was a deepening depression which tracked across Ireland, pushed across the mainland of Britain. The strongest winds were on the western and southern flank and there was a real squeeze in pressure which intensified the winds further. Uh, numerous when wind warnings were issued and there were some tragic consequences. Helen, let's just talk about numbers about how strong the winds were. They were strong in Scotland as well. That's right. Yes, Scotland saw gale force winds at, at times on Wednesday in association with this storm. But actually, it was the south of the UK that saw the strongest winds, particularly Wales, the West Country and southern England that, that felt the brunt of those winds with severe gales, high waves and some really quite damaging gusts. So in terms of wind speeds, the highest gust from Storm Noah was 96 miles per hour. This was at Needles on the Isle of Wight, a very exposed location, um, as is 
Portland, which saw the second highest at 74 miles per hour. A couple of locations on the south coast of Wales exceeded 70 miles per hour and Berry Head in Devon, 68. So some really very strong gusts of winds in association with Storm Noah. And that resulted in power outages, some trees came down and lots of travel disruption across the area, as I mentioned. It was a bad storm. It really was. But that has now cleared. And we're looking to the weekend. We're looking to next week where things are calming down. And what's happening within the upper air is something called an omega block. An interesting phrase, like flash droughts, really. It's something which is not used very often. But what it explains, what it depicts is two areas of low pressure sandwiched between an area of high pressure. And they sort of get stuck in that pattern, hence the word blocked. And that's exactly what's happening through the next few days and into the first part of next week. And an Amiga block, which is across the UK, and we'll be seeing that ridge of high pressure, which will keep things fairly quiet, which is good news because after the uh, events of this week, we really need some calm weather. So not only are we seeing settled conditions, we're likely also to see temperatures rise as well. And through the weekend, temperatures in the mid to high teens across many parts of the country. Yes, there'll be a bit of rain around across the north and the west on Sunday. But it's really that southwesterly flow which will be delivering that milder air towards the UK. And then as high pressure builds across Scandinavia and extends across the UK, we develop a southeasterly, a southeasterly flow. And that's when there'll be some complications in terms of cloud cover, because there will be some cloud around, we'll be chasing cloud, and also air temperature. So when we see an easterly where the wind flows over a cold sea at this time of year, it does pick up that cold air from the sea surface. Some parts of the country could feel the brunt of that. So let's first of all, Helen, talk about sea surface temperatures, because this time of year, we've just come out of what we call the nadir, the lowest point where the sea is at its coldest. And in fact, that's at the end of winter and the beginning of spring. There's a real delay, isn't there? Yes, sea surface temperatures lag well behind land temperatures in terms of their seasonal fluctuation. So as you say, we're just coming out of the very coldest sea surface temperatures now after the long winter period and they will be starting to warm. But that does mean we can get some real big temperature differences across the UK during this time of year with places near the coast with an onshore breeze feeling quite chilly. But we get another good meteorological phrase to throw into the mix here is the fern effect, which which we've talked about before. So it could be places what we call to the lee of high ground that experience the highest temperatures over the next few days. So perhaps northwest England, parts of the Midlands, these are the places where we'll likely see the fern effect giving some pretty decent temperatures, high teens, possibly even nudging into the low 20s. Perhaps it's a good time to head to Scotland, actually, because I think the northwest could do quite well with the, the breeze blowing over the highlands. And as it sort of sinks down the other side, it compresses, which releases more heat and the air is drier. So you get those beautiful blue skies. A good time. It's always springtime. It's a good time to be in Scotland. I know someone who's holidaying in Scotland right now who's not with us this week because he's on holiday. So let's now talk about temperatures and the possibility that we could see for the first time in the UK this year, 20 degrees. It's a, a pivot point, isn't it, from where it feels a bit chilly to that warmth, the real warmth in the air. 
what do you think about that, Helen? As someone who's a socio-meteorologist, is that a point where you think, ah, oh, yes, spring is not only in the air, we're, we're sort of surging towards summer now? Absolutely. And and again, at this time of year, the, the sun can make all the difference to the temperatures, which sounds fairly obvious, but I think um, it, you really do notice the difference when the sun's out compared to a cloudy day at this time of year. There's actually some really interesting research around how we as humans experience temperature. And I expect a, a lot of our listeners are familiar with what we call the feels like temperature. So this factors in humidity and wind speed, as well as the, the more standard air temperature but there's a slightly different concept called thermal comfort so as humans we need to keep our internal body temperature at about 37.5 celsius and we do this by cooling ourselves when we're hot via things like sweating and radiation and warming ourselves when we're cold by shivering by constricting our peripheral veins and by metabolic burning and there's quite actually a narrow band of thermal comfort and it varies depending on a variety of factors. Of course, the weather conditions, including air temperature, humidity, winds, pressure and sunlight. Also, it depends on the individual, including age, gender, our health and our genetics and then environmental factors such as our levels of activity, the clothing we're wearing and social conditions like our work and our house type. Also, it varies by geographical location. So for England, for example, the thermal comfort is between around 14.5 and 20.5 Celsius, whereas in the US, it's between about 20 and 26.5. And in the tropics, as you might expect, it's much higher at 23.5 to 29.5. So if we do reach 20 Celsius next week, it might sound really pleasant and something to look forward to, and I'm sure it will be. But actually, the body starts to have to do some work, even at this relatively benign temperature. So so perhaps it's not quite such great news after all, although I don't want to put a damp dampener on the on the decent weather conditions. So here between 52 and 60 degrees north. So the optimum temperature is probably just slightly below that. So our body is not having to work. But even so, we're feeling pleasantly warm. So maybe 18 or 19 is the optimum, which is higher likelihood next week than 20. 20 is likely the, the one we could we're sort of reaching towards. So what's your optimum temperature, would you say, you know, through the year? I always seem to feel like about 17 is is just right for me. I think 16, you might still need a coat. 17, you're probably OK without one. So, yeah, that's my ideal. Yeah, I quite like a 21, actually. 21. Yeah, I, I yeah. thought you might be a bit warmer. <laughs> 21 is sort of, you know, in old money, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. I always feel that's the tipping point into something which is really nice and warm. Once we get above 24, that's it for me, really, unless I'm on holiday. That's why our climate here normally through the spring and summer is so wonderful because we get those lovely warm days interspersed with one or two hot ones and then some fresher weather as well. It always is changing, which is great. We don't like it when it's one thing for a long time or another. But obviously with an Amiga block we just discussed, things do get stuck in a pattern. And next week's looking pretty dry as well. Just before we go, let's find out what happened last week in terms of temperature, rain and sunshine. Here's Ollie Clayden. Here are your UK weather extremes for the week beginning Monday the 3rd of April. The highest temperature was recorded on Easter Saturday in Kinlochew, Ross and Cromarty with a high of 17.3 Celsius. 
making it the warmest Scottish day this year so far. The coldest night was Monday into Tuesday morning when Benson in Oxfordshire dipped to minus 5.6 degrees. Wednesday was the wettest day. Dundennan in Kirkcudbrightshire received 36.6 millimetres of rain. And finally, the sunniest days were Tuesday when Manston in Kent picked up 12.6 hours of sun and a similar slice of sunshine was recorded on Good Friday at Goggerbank in Edinburgh and Rosthern in Cheshire. Our thanks to Ollie Clayton and my thanks to Helen Roberts, who has been in my company today. Helen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Claire. Thanks for listening to Weathersnap. I hope you've enjoyed the show and we'll see you next week.